As Sophia's birthday creeps closer, the anxiety surrounding her surprise present reaches unreasonable proportions. While she spends all her energy trying to trick Rose, Dorothy and Blanche are busy hiding the gift, Sophia's sister Angela, who has flown in from Italy. But with an unspoken feud still raging between them, the surprise only backfires. Will Rose slip up and spill the beans? Will Angela and Sophia make up? Will we ever understand why the girls love talking about veal so much? All of that and more in today's episode, Sisters. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. It's a moon over Miami kind of night as a cute little car pulls into the driveway. Inside the house, we find Sophia, who has been joyfully looking at a magazine, but upon hearing the car pull up, she quickly hides it and turns out the light. Also, her daughter, Dorothy, could come in the door and find her sighing alone in the dark. Unfazed by her mother's negative attention-seeking, Dorothy, in a blue and gray oversized, well, that goes without saying, sweater and light pants, marches right past her ma and continues towards the kitchen. In her pink, purple, and yellow checkered dress and teal cardigan, Sophia is jarred by the blatant disrespect, so she inquires, Uh, don't you want to know what I'm doing? Dorothy didn't need to ask because she already knew. It's your birthday week, so you're sitting here pouting about aging. Wrong. She's pouting because Dorothy is such a terrible gift giver. Well, if she wishes she had a kid with better gifting skills, Dorothy suggests Sophia adopt Monty Hall as her son. Let's Make a Deal, the morning game show that merely holds us over until Price is Right starts, began airing in 1963, running on and off throughout the years, and it's still running today, hosted by Wayne Brady. But back in the day, it was hosted by the charmer of all charms, the smiliest of all smiles, Monty Hall. Monty Hall was not only the host, but he was a co-executive producer and co-creator of the show of costumed contestants for more than 4,500 episodes. Giving out all sorts of prizes and zonks, Monty would be an ideal family member if you were looking for good gifts. Thank you and welcome. This is the arena for action, and action is what we get. And in our first deal today, we're going to play a little game of ping pong. You play ping, you play pong. Okay? Of course, Sophia can't respond to this without an oh boy. Yes, Monty was Jewish, born as Monty Halloprin to Orthodox parents, but that doesn't mean we need to get into stereotypes. Not every Jewish man is a good gifter or a frequent caller or a non-sports player. If anything, let's talk about Canadian stereotypes, as he was born and raised in Winnipeg. Gross! <laughs> He's all nice and has a funny little accent. Did you? So we joke now about let's make a deal when it's on and how we feel about it. Did you watch it back when it was Monty Hall days, Coco? Just kind of here and here and there. I didn't really like it. It didn't seem like it's not much of a game. Mm. And I didn't like the idea of like winning something 
that was completely useless. <laughs> it's kind of mean. Wait, so did you think, were you like me when you were little and you thought the zonks were real? Yes, and I was like, I'll take a zonk. I'll take a donkey. Give oh, me a zonky donkey. Are you stealing those words out of my brain? No, I want. I wanted to go on that show because donkeys, as you know, are yeah. my favorite land animal. And as a child, I was like, wait, I can go on a show and win a donkey? Yeah, no, I was very <laughs> excited by that. I was like, I am getting on that show and I'm getting a zonk donkey. I would still love to win a zonkey. <laughs> they still kind of do them. I mean, not with real ones because, you know, we've figured out how to treat animals better than the 60s. Yeah, you put a... You put a blanket over their back. You put a sombrero on their head. You make them stand in front of 100 strangers from <laughs> other parts of the they country. They love it. They love it. <laughs> it's what we bred them for. Dorothy isn't concerned with Sophia's concern. She has an amazing present. She'll just have to wait until Saturday to give it to her. But waiting that long has Sophia nervous. What if she dies before then? Well, then Dorothy wouldn't be able to return the gift she bought on sale. Making her way into the kitchen, Dorothy comes upon Blanche and Rose, who are busy unloading the groceries they purchased for the big party. Wearing her isn't-it-romantic teddy bear vest, Rose wishes she knew more about the surprise present, especially since Blanche, in her yellow and green with a blue-trimmed cardigan and those not-jeans-but-jeans, gets to know. In a move very un-Dorothy-like, she actually pauses to think about how to say what she wants to say as to not hurt Rose's feelings. In her pause, Blanche sees an opportunity to rip the band-aid of information off. She won't tell you because you're a blabbermouth. Thanks to edumonline.com, I learned that blabbermouth comes from the mid-1300s. Old Norse had blabbera, Danish had blabre, and German had plappern, all meaning to talk excessively. It also comes from to speak as an infant speaks. So as a blabbermouth, you are talking a lot and not really saying anything. But it can also relate specifically to a tattletale or someone that can't keep a secret, a.k.a. Rose. Not able to think of her own way to say it, Dorothy can only agree with Blanche's summation. Yep, you're a blabbermouth. As much as she wants to fight it, Rose can only bring herself to agree with them, but only on that one occasion where she told a friend Dorothy had her ears pinned in college. Poor Rose. In her moment of defense, she only ended up proving them right as Blanche was unaware of the ear work Dorothy had done. Being the kind, understanding one, Blanche jokes, what'd they use, a big ear stapler? Only adding insult to ear jury. <laughs> Despite her only continuing to blabber, Rose begs, Please, just let me know. I'll keep it a secret, I swear. And if I mess up and spill the beans, you can have my most prized possession, the Hans Kerblermeyer Yodel's Beethoven album. Coco, do you have a prized possession, kind of like... The one thing you're grabbing if the house is on fire kind of thing? My garbage pail kids. <laughs> They're irreplaceable. Uh, my dog. Oh, but no, like a like an actual possession. Oh, my PlayStation there <laughs> for sure. Definitely my PlayStation. Nothing living. Or like my weights. Uh, I don't know. I, pr I probably would. I mean, photographs, really. I don't really have yeah. um, possessions that I, I, are really that important to me. Other than my PlayStation, and um, yeah, photos. I would want that. That's, those are those are so important to me, and I would forget everything without photos. 
I have a photographic memory in that I only remember things if there are photos from it. Yeah. Or if my friend tells me about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that did happen. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I do remember that, actually, because you remembered me. <laughs> I hate that. I have. I cannot remember anything. Me neither. Oh, and I'll, people will bring up things, and I'll be like, we did that? Yeah. That sounds amazing. That sounds, yeah, that sounds real cool. <laughs> I had no idea. I wish I had cherished that a little more. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew how to do that. Yeah. I wish there was a way that you could go... Mm-hmm. And be like that Save one's it. gonna that, that memory's gonna stick. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure the future will hold that and so many more horrible things. <laughs> Just waiting for us. Bye bye. <laughs> when it comes to spilling the beans from ink.com, it's widely believed that we have the ancient Greek method of voting with beans to thank for the term spilling the beans. Using vases and different colored beans, votes would be cast. Should someone spill the vases, thus the beans, votes, or, as the term is used today, any secret information, would then be known to all. Sadly, to the best of my searching abilities, I can't find a real Hans Klabermeier, let alone one that yodels the hits of famed composer Beethoven. Not sadly, I did come across Beethoven's minuet sung by Australia's Queen of Yodeling, Mary Schneider. It does not disappoint. Some dub themselves the king of pop, others a nation's yodeling queen. The emperor of spoons. (laughs) I'm the czar of scat. You sure are. (laughs) How dare you. Despite the fact she's only proven again and again that she can't keep a secret, not maliciously, of course, just in that special rose way, Dorothy is going to tell her but not before making sure Sophia isn't around to overhear it. And it's a good thing she checks, as Sophia, doing what I plan to do once I'm at an acceptable age to do it, and I hope that age is now, she's listening at the kitchen door. Without calling out or checking on her mother, Dorothy simply attempts to open the door, knocking Sophia in the nose. Unconcerned with her well-being, Dorothy knows Sophia will be preoccupied with her face, so she gathers the girls around the table and tells them the big secret. She's bringing her mother's sister, Angela, to Miami for a visit all the way from Sicily. Thinking that's not much of a present, Rose asks if Angela will be the one bringing the surprise. No, you dummy. She's the surprise. It's been 30 years since the Grisanti sisters have seen each other, and this will be a delight for everyone. Now, I don't know that this is a plot whoopsie so much as a plot confusion. With Sophia's colorful storytelling, we never really learn the exact age she was when she came to the U.S. from Sicily, but we can narrow it down to her late teens and early 20s. Perhaps Angela came around at the same time. Straight from Italy, they both lived in Brooklyn for about 30 years before Angela moved back and has been there an additional 30 years. They're both supposed to be about 80 years old. I love that Sophia has never had even a glimmer of an Italian accent, and Angela, once we meet her, you'll find that she too, even though she's been living in Italy 50 of her 80 years, has nothing but a strong New York accent. Although it's much easier to digest, in my opinion, than Uncle Angelo's Italian accent. But that's for another episode. 
It's not only out of need that Dorothy has decided to tell Rose, but before she can go into more detail about how she can help, she has to holler out for Sophia once again, who is now listening at the back door. Frustrated, Dorothy begs her mother to just chill out, wait, and enjoy your surprise instead of wasting all this time and energy trying to spoil it. Sophia understands, but she just can't. She has surprise trauma. The last time she was surprised, she walked in on Dorothy's cousin Vito, who was dancing around in Sophia's girdle. Fair enough. When Blanche assures Sophia she'll love her surprise, Sophia shifts her focus to Rose, who is giggling and smirking. She knows, now Sophia knows she knows, and Rose knows Sophia knows she knows. Sophia also knows Rose is a blabbermouth, so now she knows she just has to get Rose to slip up and the surprise will be out. And that shouldn't be too hard to do. Starting out with a bribe, Sophia suggests she and Rose go to Dairy Queen to get ice cream cones after dinner. She'll even pay the extra five cents for sprinkles if that means Rose will squeal. It's a beautiful sunny day in Miami, and it's the day of Sophia's party and Angela's arrival. As Blanche hangs up the streamers, thank goodness for those columns. Sure, they take up a large footprint in the house and they kind of clutter it, but they are handy for decorations. Rose comes out of the hallway to her surprise. She's supposed to be out of the house keeping Sophia busy with shopping while they get Angela settled from her trip. But Sophia won't leave. She simply comes up with excuse after excuse as to why she won't go shopping. Since she isn't getting Rose to slip up, she goes for the heartstrings. Coming into the living room with a cane and weakened voice, Sophia's ready to go. Her weak appearance has Rose panicked. What's going on? Oh, nothing, claims Sophia. She just happened to have gone to the doctor yesterday, and he broke the horrible news that her heart is bad. A ticking time bomb. The slightest jolt, shock, or surprise will be the end of her. So if anyone, like, say, Rose, has any information about upcoming surprises, she should tell her. It could literally save her life. That little push for information finally clues the girls into what Sophia is really doing. Shame on her for trying to trick dumb old Rose over here. While trying to guilt Rose into sharing, Sophia implies she's okay facing death. She's had a full and happy life, with the exception of only having made love in one position. The famed sex position manual, the Kama Sutra, had 64 positions in its original release. And that's just one book, so perhaps one position doesn't make for the fullest life. That goes for everyone. The Daily Mail shared that there are over 600 documented positions, but the average couple alternates between just two or three. Blanche in her bright blue button-up shirt, which is open over a yellow one, and Rose in her best Easter-themed funeral business attire of a light blue blazer with a hint of pink clouds or something over an all-white ensemble have both had it. You're not going to trick Rose, no matter how dumb we all agree she is. Throwing down the cane in defeat, Sophia agrees they should go. But once again, the con woman of all con women is on to her next plan to talk trash about her daughter using and abusing Rose in hopes that she'll spoil the surprise out of spite. Fun. As Sophia goes on and on about all the things Dorothy makes Rose do, wait for popcorn at the movies, pick up the furniture when they're vacuuming, cleaning the mop after Dorothy's used it, Rose is quickly persuaded to agree with Sophia. Dorothy does nothing but take advantage of her. Oh, hi, Ellen. Ellen Burstyn, 
Bursting into the kitchen, Dorothy, in her sensibly huge purple v-neck sweater over a white shirt and jeans, is not exactly pleasant towards Rose when she finds her there with Sophia. They were supposed to be gone shopping. But after Sophia's little chat, Rose only hears a tone of demanding cruelty, so she tells her to shove her mop up her bum, or in the polite St. Olaf way, where the herring don't swim. Not concerned with the damage she's done to the friendship of her daughter and roommate, Sophia's only concerned with the fact that she was this close to getting Rose to say what the present is. Both upset with Dorothy, they storm out the back. Making sure the coast is clear, Dorothy waits until the ladies are gone to scamper through the house, which is now fully decorated thanks to Blanche, to get Angela out of the car. Except she's not in the car, she's at the front door. Matching her TV sister at a whopping 4 foot 11 is actress Nancy Walker. A birthday twin to myself, May 10th, she was born into vaudeville as her father was a performer. The entertainment gene led to her having a 50-year career on screen. Not only did she have appearances on shows like Columbo, Fame, The Love Boat, Trapper John M.D., The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda, Fantasy Island, Happy Days, Police Story, McMillan and Wife, The Partridge Family, Love American Style, and The Red Skelton Show. Her talents and charm were so great, she was even given her own show, The Nancy Walker Show, which sadly only ran for 13 episodes. I always wake up singing in the morning, full of beans and buzzing like the bee. Put on my hat, check it with the mirror. Okay, world, are you ready for me? And when I strap my sandals on the sidewalk, Nancy's talent didn't end in front of the camera. She actually ended up directing some episodes of Rhoda and other sitcoms, eventually directing the poorly timed 1980s disco-themed motion picture Can't Stop the Music, starring The Village People and Caitlyn Jenner, among others. Wowzers. While she was supposed to wait in the car so Sophia wouldn't see her, Angela couldn't be bothered, so she got out. When a neighbor passed, she froze like a lawn jockey, which, as we've previously discussed, is its own oh boy, and it worked as the dog attempted to pee on her. Oh, Angela, you're as colorful as your sister. Oh, boys must run in the family. Strangely, Angela came to a party on the other side of the earth with no suitcase for apparently a good reason. She had a trauma of her own, and she no longer carries luggage. Long story short, it was New York 1956. Headed to Sicily on a boat, Angela met and befriended Pee Wee Bambanzi, a little person she refers to as a midget. She also jokes about walking in little circles with him. Away from the oh boys, Pee Wee, after building a relationship with Angela and spending their time together eating and laughing, straight up disappeared. When it came time for customs, an odor, not one that should be accompanying the veal shank or beaver coat she had in her suitcase, was noticeable. Opening the bag, there was Pee-wee. Apparently, he hadn't outrun the mob, and he was killed. 
With no other option, Angela burned the suitcase, burned the coat, and never cared for how the veal tasted. It must not be that bad. She's too traumatized to carry a suitcase, but not too traumatized to have had veal on the flight over. Sneaking in from her shopping trip after tricking Rose into thinking she had run over a neighbor, Sophia is relentless in spoiling her surprise. Following behind, Rose explains she had to check on the neighbor. It was the same one she had accidentally pinned between her car, her walker, and a fence just a few days prior. Once Sophia and Rose are again out the door, Dorothy and Blanche start to get Angela settled into her room. But before they can do that, she has another story. A story about how Blanche reminds her so much of Dorothy's beautiful cousin, Apollonia. A stunning woman with a huge butt. It's funny how physical trends change. Nowadays, the joke would be about Blanche having a small derriere. It's nighttime, so it's the right time to have a party. With a table full of food and a room full of people, the light blue 1950s Dior-inspired suit-wearing Sophia doesn't care about any of it. She wants her present. But Rose, in her cream-colored silk pajamas-looking jumper but make it a business outfit, and Dorothy, in her lace bright pink shirt dress from her daughter's wedding, are not listening. First, cake. Which, let's be honest, at this point, Sophia is actually in the right. Yes, you should have cake before presents, that way people can be eating a treat while you get gifts, but especially when you have a person that flew across the ocean to see you, I don't think holding out makes much sense. Angela is missing out on the party and just sitting in a room? No, ma'am. With one final desperate attempt, Sophia congratulates Rose on having kept the secret. She did it the whole time, even up until Dorothy told her what it was. When Dorothy returns with the candles for the cake, Rose is surprised to learn Dorothy told Sophia about the surprise that's in the... Sick of dragging it out, but maybe not sick of torturing her mother, Dorothy finally gives in. Fine, I'll get you your surprise. You win. Just like Mighty Mouse, you always win. First appearing in 1942 as Super Mouse, a blend of Superman and Mickey, Mighty Mouse went on to star in dozens of shorts, comics, and shows. He came to save the day, and he always did, just like Sophia. You may also recognize his theme song from the iconic performance by Andy Kaufman and Jim Carrey as Andy. Excited to see her gift, Sophia gets the attention of the partygoers and they gather round. Making a beautiful speech about the love she has for her mother and her hopes that this gift makes her feel as loved as she is, an impatient Sophia waves her hand on as Dorothy then calls out for Blanche, who brings in the present. Dressed in her own red version of Sophia's outfit is Angela. Surrounded by complete silence, the little women make their way to each other. Sophia is in near disbelief that it's her sister, or as Angela sarcastically replies, no, Gina Lola Brigida. As an international sex symbol, Italian movie star, and Amazon at a whopping 5'5", it's no wonder Angela is concerned one might confuse her with Gina Lola Brigida. Besides American shows like Love Boat and Falcon Crest, she was nominated for her role in Come September, starring opposite Rock Hudson, and was also in Solomon and Sheba, The Wayward Wife, and Bread Love and Dreams. Nearly beaming, Dorothy is so happy for her mother, aunt, and herself as she watches over this reunion, which is quickly, by the words of Sophia, turned into a reunion. This, this old bag, is my present? 
Before a hug can even happen betwixt the two, Sophia storms off, declaring her hate for Angela. Angela does the same, but makes it a double. Later in the evening, Dorothy joins the girls in the kitchen. She had been trying to get Sophia and Angela to speak, but all she got was two doors in her face as she stood alone in the hallway. Two things here. Unusual for the girls, they didn't discuss sleeping arrangements. As it was a surprise, we can only assume Dorothy was giving up her room for Angela, so now she can't even get into her own space? Second, if Angela was so quick to express hatred for her sister, why did she come? Just like when Rose talks to the piggies on her shower curtain when she's upset and doesn't get a response, Dorothy got nothing from the ladies. No answers, no conversation, no reasoning. Teal pantsuit-wearing Blanche has all the answers, though. The only thing that could make these women act in such a way is jealousy, which she knows all about, especially since she was the prettiest little girl that had ever walked this earth. Dorothy, acting like how I feel when my friends talk about their childhoods, adolescence, jobs, lives, literally anything, shuts it down with a dose of reality slash there's no way we're going to relate here. Unlike Blanche's perfect ringlets and rosy cheeks, Dorothy was the tallest baby in New York and had a head rash the first two years of her life. I'm not sure how long Dorothy was at birth, but the record holder for longest or tallest baby was born to Anna Bates in 1879. He remains the longest baby and is high on the list for biggest babies overall. He was a whopping 23 pounds 9 ounces and was over 30 inches long. Dorothy might have been in the running as her genes match that of other record holders, like the Italian baby boy who was the largest baby to survive past infancy at 22 pounds 8 ounces, and a New York baby girl born in 2019 who was 15 pounds 5 ounces. Giving Dorothy's pitiful story an, oh, Blanche quickly returns to hers. Sure, Blanche was better at everything than her sister Charmaine, everything that is except cheerleading. She could do batons, she could twirl, she could bend, she could even get her body into the shape of the letter R. This information leaves Rose lost in a moment of what we all did. Well, if it's lowercase, that's really not a big deal. But uppercase, I mean, okay, you move a leg out, maybe reach your arms over. Is that such a feat? Wanting to show off to her sister, Charmaine dared Blanche to also try for the cheerleading captain when trials were held. Charmaine did everything right. She leapt, she cheered, she twirled the baton so fast she looked like a DC-3 coming in for a landing. The DC-3 airliner came out in the 1930s. Not only was it a propeller-based plane, it was one of the first to carry passengers comfortably and it could make longer flights. Other planes of that size hadn't been able to. Going over 200 miles per hour, no wonder Charmaine's batons confused the judges. Then came Blanche's turn. She dropped her baton, she fell, she couldn't hold a handstand, which is why it was so shocking she was named cheer captain after a vote by the judges. How did she manage that? Simple. Under her skirt, she wore black lace panties with French writing. There's an important but not huge distinction between the French terms Blanche sported on her panties. One, bonjour, meaning hello. The other, bon appetit, meaning good appetite or enjoy your meal. Either way, at least she was polite. So in the end, it didn't matter that she was upsetting her sister or bringing lagging skills to the captainship. All that mattered was she was winning. Why? 
because she was jealous of Charmaine being Big Daddy's favorite daughter. For Rose, it doesn't matter what's going on between the sisters. They just need to talk it out and problem solve so they can move forward. It's just like they used to say back home. You can let two angry mackerel fight it out in a purse, but don't plan on bringing that purse to a formal affair. Once her nonsense earns faces of judgment, confusion, and frustration from her friends, Rose realizes the point of the phrase might have been lost in translation. Asking Google, let's find out if anything is lost in the translation of that old Scandinavian saying. In Swedish, it ends up being, Du kan lata tra arga marklo slas und la harderskarko min plarna inter antum barnenden plan bloken till informal afrar. So, there you go. They're obsessed with fish. They love fish. They're candies. <laughs> That's all I know. Well, there's a lot of water around them. Well, I'm just going to write down the more you know right here. <laughs> Making up for the mackerel, Rose makes a good point. People in their hearts want to make up. We tend to forget about what the root cause was of an argument, disagreement, or fight and get stuck in the hurt or anger of it all. When, if we just took a step back, there might, depending on the offense of the other party, be room for reconciliation. While Dorothy agrees that this is a good idea, she wants Rose to remember, this is not going to be easy. We're talking about 30 years of resentment here between old women who think boils on a man equal virility. Boils are small infections of hair follicles which produce red, swollen, zit-like risings in the skin. I'm not sure if people of older age are more prone to them, but hey, whatever you're into. I mean, it's not like it's hot tub folliculitis. Virility in men, or fertility in women, isn't dictated by shoe size or how long they can last, forcing a pile of newspapers to build up outside a motel room after days on end of lovemaking. According to Men's Health, there are some actual signs a man's swimmers might be in good shape, although I'm pretty sure these ladies are more concerned with the mechanics working, not so much the option of pregnancy. Some of those signs are not having a gut, eating fish, wearing loose undies and pants, that he has a little bit of a higher voice, that he works out, and he's cautious about using BPA products. Can I, I would just like to interject and say that in no way, based on those parameters, should anyone try to use my sperm to make a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. On a side note, I recently read something from a doctor who said it's not the feet you should be looking at for sizing, it's the nose. But I have a theory of my own that it's the hand size. It's kind of built to fit there, and in my experience, there's kind of, you know, from the thumb to the tip of the index is kind of a, a good barometer. Coco, do you have any clues for um, that kind of thing? I size a man up. By just looking right in his eyes, I can tell how big it is, how virile he is, just by just by just by peeping his peeps. There's no there's no telling, so you have to you have to look at other factors. Yeah, the size of the truck, <laughs> the color of the truck. If it's white, uh oh. So it's decided. Blanche and Rose, already having a relationship with Sophia, will talk with her while Dorothy speaks to Aunt Angela. Turns out Angela is in Dorothy's room, and she's packing up into her purse. 
which amazingly was able to hold her hairbrush, nail polish remover, her really nice dress that she wore to the party, the clothes that she wore getting off the plane, maybe some pajamas. It's like a Mary Poppins bag. Anyway, putting her foot down, Dorothy tells her aunt it's only fair, after the time and money that she has spent to make this happen, that she is told why it's falling apart. Fine. Angela gives in. Picture it. 1955. The sisters were at a holiday party. Everyone was laughing, drinking, chugging Pepto-Bismol because the hostess's manicotti was so heavy with cheese it could anchor a boat. From across the room, she watched her sister sipping the eggnog from the bowl before catching her running up to Angela's husband, who was dressed as Santa and under the mistletoe, and planting a huge kiss on him. Oh, does Sophia deal with Santafilia too? We're going back to ancient Greece thanks to LiveScience.com to learn about mistletoe. Add it to the list of newspapers and shoe size, mistletoe was seen as a sign of fertility. So in weddings and during Saturnalia, the festival celebrating Saturn in mid-December, mistletoe was hung and people kissed under it. Feeling it was also a sign of peace, ancient Greeks even had people settle fights and wars under mistletoe. In shock, Angela grabbed Sophia and took her into the pantry where she confronted her. The married Sophia surprisingly answered by saying she thought someone else was in the Santa suit, but Angela didn't buy it. They argued, Sophia denied it, Angela left the party, and her husband passed soon after. Within a year, she was on a boat, met Pee Wee, and that was the last time they spoke. Dorothy can understand the hurt, but it was also three decades ago. Their family. Can't she try to talk it out with her, try to make up? Can't she do that for her favorite niece? Even though Grazilla is Angela's favorite, she's willing to do it for Dorothy. Mostly because she's begging like her apparently horny uncle used to do when he got back home to Angela after a long goat drive. Back in Sophia's room, the jumpsuit queens of my dreams are confronting her on what her deal is. Accidentally using a St. Olaf story as a torture technique, Rose begins a story, and before she can get even a few words out, Sophia gives in. It's the same Christmas party. Salvador de Millo, the neighborhood heartthrob, as he was the only guy with a neck, um, out to your fellow Italian, Sophia, was there. Sophia, full from the anchor-worthy manicotti, made her way to the upstairs bathroom for a bromo seltzer. More on that in a moment. That's when Sal, not her Sal, grabbed her from behind and kissed her. Well, she did what any respectable woman would do. She felt him up a little bit before pushing him away. Running off, she grabbed her sister and told her. Within minutes, everyone knew about it. In the pantry, they confronted each other, and they both left angry. Not speaking for 30 years, Sophia can easily forget and does all the time. But forgive? Not so much. Okay, back to the Bromo Seltzer. It was basically packaged Alka-Seltzer, like a bottle of pre-bubbly tummy-slash-cure-all medicine. In this commercial, featuring Jack Klugman of The Odd Couple, he compares the two, pointing out that as one starts fizzing, he's already drinking the Bromo. You see, Bromo's in there right now going to work while these are still fizzing. And when you hurt, even a little bit, time counts. So why wait? Take a Bromo. When you don't have the time to feel bad. There was one problem with it, though. It didn't contain alcohol, but the chemical combination it did have led to what doctors called 
bromoism. They noticed a pattern, not hugely common, but common enough to be of concern, where alcoholics seeking relief from a hangover would then consume bottles of bromo seltzer, causing hallucinations and other effects that were similar to being drunk. Forcing the women to meet face to face, Dorothy brings Angela into Sophia's room. Slowly walking towards each other, neither wants to be the first to apologize. Awkwardly making small talk, Sophia asks if Angela still has her cat, from 30 years ago. Unless she was the owner of Cream Puff, the Guinness World Record holder for longest living cat at 38 years and three days, we're sad to say, no, she does not still have that cat. It only takes a few words for the tempers of the ladies to get going, and before the rest of the girls know it, Sicilian curses, threats, and insults are being hurled at breakneck speed. Saying someone is a two-lira, well, anything, let alone a tramp or, as she probably intends, a sex worker, is not a nice thing to say. In today's dollars, that would be worth about 20 cents. Jerry Vale, born Gennaro Luis Vitaliano in the Bronx, was a crooner through the 50s and 60s, known for his hits like And No One Knows, Enchanted, and You Don't Know Me. He was equally famous for his luscious locks of thick, sweeping hair. No, you don't know the one who dreams of you at night and longs to kiss your lips and longs to hold you in a rare moment of physical comedy for Estelle, it is the slanderous curse of may your marinara never be thick enough to stay on your pasta that really crosses the line, and we get a perfectly overdramatic gasp from Rose and a biting of the fist from Sophia. Running out of the room after her sister, Dorothy, Rose, and Blanche are left at square one. It's the next morning, and a darling-dressed Angela, in a bright blue suit and flowy white undershirt, is quickly making her way to the front door, followed closely by her niece in her fall sweater from just two episodes ago. Angela would love to stay, but she hates Dorothy's mother, so she must be headed back home. Coming out of the hallway in her pastel-checkered house dress is Sophia, disgusted to see that Angela is still there. A sporty Blanche in green pants and a white top, using the matching green sweater as a neck wrap like a James Spader character in a John Hughes movie, and Rose in an all-yellow dress are along for the drama as well, following them to the door. Fed up with their immaturity, Dorothy begs them, at the very least, can't you just say goodbye? But the ladies won't even look at each other. Fine, fine, okay, it's done, goodbye. Just as quickly as Dorothy decided they would leave, she pulls Angela back in the house. Growing up, there were two people Dorothy admired and loved the most, her mother and her aunt. And to see them deteriorate into this, it's just too much for her to bear. They owe Dorothy a debt of gratitude for her speech, as she pointed out, who cares about your since-past husband getting kissed when you're about to say goodbye, maybe forever, to your own sister? Hearing about the husband, Sophia's confused. She tells Angela, hey, just like you, I didn't kiss your husband. I gave my friend shawl to our other friend, and she kissed everyone, including him. She had been busy catching money in her cleavage. It was never Sophia who kissed Carmine. That's great. So Angela isn't upset. But Sophia continues to be. You told everyone about my incident with the next Sal. But Angela stands firm. I didn't tell anyone. The drunk guy who was under the table and puked on your shoe, Vinny, he was the one who ran his mouth. So there they were, 
After just a few moments of speaking, telling the truth, and clarifying, they realized that they had both been wrong and holding a grudge for literally no reason. After realizing the error of their miscommunication, the sisters walked towards each other, arms open. As they embrace, Blanche is moved, Rose is delighted, and Dorothy thinks everybody is nuts. This may have been a simple episode, but the lesson is important. How much time and energy have we wasted being hurt or angry without confronting the situation to make sure our feelings were coming from the right place? In addition, how often have we been in a perhaps estranged place in a relationship, but we're too scared to confront it? Maybe it's a fear of things ending. Maybe it's a fear of being wrong. Maybe it's a fear of having a hurt friend. But that fear isn't a good enough reason to avoid conflict. Instead of holding that anger and anxiety, check in with that person. Ask if they're mad. If so, why? A few moments of talking might save you years of heartache and repair the friendship. Also, don't spoil your surprise. Let the gifter enjoy it, will ya? As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when pity leads to poor decision-making in The Stan Who Came to Dinner. If you're looking for one-of-a-kind art in multiple forms, look no further than Buy Me a Hot Dog on Instagram. Not only can you commission a beautiful art piece for your wall, you can pick up hand-painted coasters featuring each of our girls. So you could buy the set he already has available, or you could choose your favorite landscape scenes, art from the house, or any photo of the girls to put under your favorite Rusty Anchor-inspired drink. Perfect for anyone on your nice list. That's buy me a hot dog at Instagram for your hand-painted Golden Girls coasters. And while you're at it, check out his comedy album, Queen of Small Town Gossip, on iTunes. Do you think, like, Grand Canyon donkeys look at Zonk donkeys back in the day and they were like, wow, you guys are really, like, prissy? They've got it made. They're the L.A. donkeys. I made it, Ma. I'm a zonk. The the Arizona cousins at the Grand Canyon are like, I work. You know what I do for a living? I carry people down into a canyon all day and I carry them out. And what do you do? You're a model. You're no donkey. Hee-haw, indeed. (laughs) Coming soon, the animated Zoolander donkey version. Zoolander donkey version? Yeah. Injury. Oh, putting the ears further. Insult to injury. No. (laughs) Votes or as... Well, you don't have a gut, but you don't have a six. You've got like a dad bod, which is great, and I love your body. Correct. But you are cautious about your plastics. Thank you. So I don't work out, but I am cautious about plastics, so... Let's call somebody and find out about your swimmers. I can't open the jar, but I can tell you the impact it's having (laughs) on the turtles. I mean, I do look at the hands. I do look at the hands. That's a good way to tell. But I don't think it's it's not necessarily. Yeah, I don't think there's any one thing. I would say that I have absolutely like the tiniest hands I've ever seen in my life. And I have the hugest penis. It's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) Or uh, I guess, you know what? It looks, um, it's huge and it looks disgruntled. (laughs) And it, like, it's it looks ready like, to fight. It looks like it has high blood pressure, too. Very red. Stop it. Everyone's going to get so jealous. Slash horny. Gmail us. 
I could keep talking about this forever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll start a newsletter. Well, yeah, because people are just walking around naked. Mm -hmm. Well, I've only been in a gym once. <laughs> and it was to take a sh <laughs> <laughs> I bet he rode them. <clears throat> yeah, rode the goats to drive the goats. Goats have handlebars. Oh my god. <laughs> you turned on the mic for that? <clears throat> Is this thing on goats have handlebars? <laughs> you know that? <laughs> Are you drinking over there? I can't see you. <laughs> This goat has got handlebars. This goat has got two built-in handlebars. I ride goats because they got the built-in handlebars. Put some handlebars on a goat. That's the best friend you ever have. He's a friend. And he's your ride. <laughs> Oh my! I sounded like a like a four year old running up to a, <laughs> to a microphone. Mom, mommy, mommy, goats have, have handlebars. Handlebars. <laughs> goats have handlebars. Always be my sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always be my sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sisters.